0: Good morning listeners, today we are very lucky to have Stephen Hale back to record another episode with us. Since Stephen was on last, I've gone away and read two of the Warren Mosler articles that Stephen suggested and sat through lots and lots of Stephanie Kelton's videos and feel slightly competent to ask better questions. So without further ado, let's learn more about MMT and possible policy settings.
1: Hello, David. I'd be surprised if you asked better questions than last time, because they were pretty good last time.
0: Oh, no, no. They were my average questions.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, thank you for joining us, Stephen. It's good to have you here. Uh, It's a pleasure to be back again. And thank you, David. Thank you, Tim. Now, job guarantees. That's what we're starting with? I think that's a good place to start, because we all want one. Yeah, (laughs) JG. Now, I have some interesting questions about this, because I talked to let's say, more of a classical economist. Someone that doesn't even say that they're an economist but is more like a classical economist about this. And they had some objections,
1: so I'm going to bring those here and I assume you'll be able to shoot them down. <laughs> Absolutely. And to be fair to the classical economists, the people that aren't economists that call themselves those things are, are usually neoclassical I economists. Think, yes. I've, got, <laughs> I've got much more in common with the classical economists of the 19th century than the neoclassical <laughs> economists of... Uh, there's a small leap from neoclassical economics to neoliberalism. Okay. Very Tim, small. I are see. we able to put little
0: sound bites in? Yes. Can we have a little 10-second things of some sort of cool neoclassical fusion?
2: Because yes. if I'm going
0: to be a neoclassical, I want a guitar.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, Stephen, can we start off with perhaps uh, an explanation of job guarantees for those who don't know?
1: Okay, well, it's quite an old idea, really. One of the earliest proponents of what was in those days called an employer of last resort scheme, which I think he came up with that term because we've always had central banks that have been lenders of last resort to the banking system, but there's never been an employer of last resort for people who might be unable to uh, find employment at the moment and who are looking for employment, was Hyman Minsky in the 1960s, and actually at the time, that this was an era of full employment, at least in Australia, and close to full employment in the US. Minsky in the 50s and 60s, amongst the other things he wrote about, he's famous for writing about something called the Financial Instability Hypothesis, which is the theory that capitalism is unstable upwards, and that you get debt bubbles and then they crash and for many years arguing that the 1929 crash or something like it would happen again, which is why everybody started reading Hyman Minsky again after 2008. Well, in the 1960s, amongst other things, he said, the full employment we have at the moment, based on what has become known as Keynesian economics, although perhaps not the economics of, of Keynes, is going to break down for a variety of reasons as time goes by, As the threat of unemployment becomes something from the distant past, social pressures are building up, which mean that uh, you get more of a problem with inflation if you try to spend your way, which is the Keynesian approach to full employment. You get a shortage of skills, bottlenecks, uh, and of course unions get more bargaining power as you get close to full employment. So inflation starts to rise sooner. Each time in the stop growth cycles of the 1960s and early 1970s, and even before the oil shock of the early 70s, Minsky was saying, this is unsustainable. The institutional structure that we have in modern-day capitalism will not allow us to maintain full employment indefinitely without an increasing issue as far as inflation is concerned. So he recommended moving to a situation where you had a... He called it an employer of last resort, what we now call a federal job guarantee, which was a situation where if somebody was unemployed or underemployed and needed to find employment, then the state would fund, the federal government would fund a minimum wage job Uh, And I can talk about the types of things people might do and uh, how it might be organised in Australia today a little bit later on. But the idea was that the only institution in the country that is in a position to hire an indeterminate number of workers at a fixed wage without the issue of insolvency is the federal government. And such a policy will not only set minimum standards as far as wages and working conditions are concerned, and empower people in low-paid jobs. But it will also act as an anchor for inflationary expectations, the wage that's paid in the scheme. Mm. And on top of that, it will help to, in Minsky's words, stabilise an unstable economy. Mm. Because during a boom, the amount of spending on the employer of last resort scheme will Mm. fall, and so the government budget will naturally move towards a smaller deficit, or perhaps rarely even, because it's rarely appropriate, a surplus. Mm. And in a downturn, people don't face the threat of unemployment. Instead, they uh, have the option of going to the job guarantee and naturally spending on the job guarantee without anybody fine-tuning it, without public servants having to forecast in advance what would be the appropriate level of public spending or to change the tax system in anticipation of an economic downturn the spending on the job guarantee will automatically expand when it should do during a downturn so that the government budget should move towards deficit as necessary to support the economy. And by doing that you should be able to maintain a loose form of full employment. We say loose because we're not guaranteeing everybody is going to be able to do the job that they might normally aspire to do and we're not guaranteeing everybody if you lose your job, that you're going to have the same level of income. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to be
0: willing to turn up and do the base level job that is available.
2: Yeah, I was was thinking that. I was really hoping it wasn't going to be just employ everyone because I think there are some people you may not want to employ. No, but this is Um, the thing, let's say
0: here, this is not communism. We're not mm. talking about state employment on a mass scale in a multitude of industries Mm -hmm. that people shouldn't, you know, that states shouldn't pay for. This is about a last resort way of making sure people make minimum wage so they've got money to spend, which keeps the economy going around, which means that by that money going around, if they're highly competent, Mm. they will get to jump back into the economy when it grows. So what you potentially end up with is a group of people who consistently are working for the government in Mm. these base-level jobs. But in doing so, there's still all the questions of meaning, value, purpose, above mm-hmm. and beyond the economic benefit, mm-hmm. that people can say, I'm not sitting at home getting a handout check, mm-hmm. I'm going to work, earning for something that is socially productive.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and um, I mean, so many other things you, you could say. This is Minsky's idea in the in the 60s. We don't call it an employer of last resort scheme anymore because that we just don't like that terminology no, any longer. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of, at the moment, called a federal job guarantee, but... Warren Mosler is pushing even to rename it again and talk about transition jobs. See, I don't think
0: they should talk about it transitionally because from the perspective of being blind, you pretty much get two choices when you you turn 18 in Australia as a disabled person. Mm. You can either take the job of last resort provided by organisations so that you do have something to do during the day or you can work your ass off and hope you can pull a rabbit out of a hat. Uh, There's nothing in the middle.
1: I agree with you, David. I'm quite happy with the federal yeah. job guarantee job. I, I Term I wouldn't have minded. Still calling it an employer of last resort <laughs> scheme. It's yeah. not a. It's not. Uh, that's not an important issue as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, he put it forward um, mm-hmm. then. There, when the problems arose following the oil shock in the late 1970s, mm-hmm. um, that was the last time that what was regarded then as mainstream economics was in crisis, and there were some people who thought. That economic management would move towards a Hyman Minsky mm-hmm. approach then, but politicians and economists who might not have been brilliant economists, but they were great at marketing, like Milton Friedman, yeah. won the argument, and in, and there was a choice which direction to go in in the late seventies, and and we took everywhere around the world really <laughs> took the same mm-hmm. the same choice, which has led to where we are today. There's a lot more to talk about as far as the job guarantee mm-hmm. is concerned than I've just said. It's it's a scheme for First of all, spending on the people that need help, mm-hmm. when the spending needs to happen and where the spending needs to happen. One of the issues with the, again, the old fashioned approach, which was just a government spending on a variety of things, including infrastructure projects to push the economy towards full employment, is that the beneficiaries of that spending were on the whole people that didn't need the help mm-hmm. yeah. and people that weren't going to be unemployed very long anyway or weren't unemployed at all and just saw their wages or the returns on their investments going up as a result of that expenditure. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do is to have a, a scheme which primarily benefits the people who need the help the most, the ones who are the last people to get hired, generally speaking, when the economy's boomed boom and the first people to lose their jobs if there's a, if there's a downturn. There are other benefits too. It's a way of keeping rural and remote communities viable, putting money into those communities. In general, there's a a great variety of tasks which it would be useful to perform, which are not performed at the moment because of a lack of funding in those communities as well. And of course, if you put money into those communities, it creates other jobs too. It means people don't have to necessarily all move to Sydney or Melbourne to get work they can they can stay where they are so it it has that impact on congestion in the big cities as well it's important that people understand that it's in no sense compulsory
0: no you have to want to turn up that's what i really liked about reading the literature Stephen. maybe list off some of the kinds of work so people understand here this is a way of getting people back into feeling competent and confident so they can then make themselves more competent and confident, looking in front of the private sector to leap to higher wages.
1: And do you know what? When I, I mean, before I do that, and I'll talk about how it might be organised in Australia. But uh, when I do talks about this kind of thing in places like Elizabeth, nobody ever asks me about what jobs need doing, because you just have to walk around,
2: mm. and there
1: are so many things that need to be done that are not being done in areas where actually there's the highest level of unemployment and underemployment um, at the moment. But I'll I'll get to those tasks in a minute. First of all, perhaps how it might be organised. We're not all that prescriptive about how to organise a job guarantee. It's not one-size-fits-all. It would be we've had job guarantee-like schemes in places like Argentina in the past, and that that shouldn't be a negative, actually, during the relatively rare periods when Argentina has been well-managed. In the past, there was a job guarantee, which they should not have phased out, and they phased out for the wrong reasons. And there's a rural job guarantee still, or job guarantee-like scheme still in India, which is massive, which is maybe 100 times as big as the scheme would be in Australia if we were running uh, 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 such a scheme here. Most of us, me included, are in favour of outside maybe cooperative ventures in remote areas, there being no private sector involvement in a job guarantee at all, which is, for, for a variety of reasons, important. One of those reasons is that the job active network, the privatised job act- active network, is so unpopular and so tarnished.
0: What well, makes money for companies, and what's that got to do with using government money to employ people?
1: Exactly. So what we would like to do is we, we don't want to have a Minister for Jobs and Small Business, as it's called at the moment, I think. Uh, we want to have a Minister of Employment again, and we would like to reinstitute a Commonwealth Employment Service. The Commonwealth Employment Service would have big offices in the capital cities and major regional centres like Newcastle too, and then in every local community there'd be a small Commonwealth Employment Service office, and the job of the Commonwealth Employment Service would not purely be to run the job guarantee. It would be what perhaps it once was, in the 1970s and before, which is a, a way of helping people to have the greatest possible employment opportunities they can, and matching up the needs of local employers with available local workers, and planning for the future when, if we're talking about areas of local local skill shortages, and ensuring that training was av- appropriate, training was available to people who wanted to take advantage of it. To fill those vacancies, well, part of that would be the job guarantee. So, if you are not in full-time employment, and if you want to participate in the job guarantee, you turn up at the job guarantee office, and you see I don't know what you want to call them, counselor, there, and there's basically a local job bank, and that local job bank. Would involve, I suppose, you'd need a template from the centre, but we can come to local variations in a minute because it wouldn't be the same everywhere in the country. But there'd be environmental projects. You might have people basically offering companionship and support. To yeah, aged care about, support
0: yeah. or things like that. Mm. We're not
1: yeah, we're not talking about nursing here. No, just about, support. Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah. Then there are volunteer jobs that people do at the moment in the public service where there's lots of shortages in different parts of the country. So, you could be helping out archiving in a, a in a public library, or you could be a volunteer in a school or involved in after-school activities. You might be working depending on what part of the country we're talking about on small infrastructural project, not major ones. That's not appropriate to be part of the job guarantee. That should be part of normal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, normal economic that, activity. That's right. And also, there's no reason, and, and uh, this is something I'm very keen on, why, just as in the, the New Deal in the US in the 1930s, why you wouldn't have a cultural services employer. So you'd have various organisations, various employers, all of them government-owned and controlled, which locally are part of the local Commonwealth em- Employment Service Office and people would end up working in one of those areas. Mm-hmm. The local authority, although it's not running the scheme, would have input in terms of prioritising mm. jobs to be done locally and there needs to be then a framework for the local authority to consult the local community mm-hmm. in, order to, in order to bring that about. People that are involved in the management of the scheme are not job guarantee workers themselves. They're standard public Public sector. That's absolutely right. The idea is that these jobs should be primarily minimum wage jobs. That's not necessarily at the current level of the minimum wage, but you are setting Mm. the social minimum. Mm. And at the moment, the minimum wage, Australia has the world's highest minimum wage. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not high enough, but it's nonetheless the world's highest minimum wage. The minimum wage in the US, federal minimum, is $7.25 now, which mm-hmm. even given the exchange rate is appallingly terrible. shocking. Mm-hmm. But our minimum wage is not a minimum at the moment because you know, we've got 500,000 people on Start. Well, this is the point to think about. Yeah.
0: <laughs> mm. What we're talking about here, audience, keep in mind that a lot of people now who are at Centrelink and are looking for a job they may not be qualified for, here these are entry-level jobs, so having just got back from Canberra as you drive around Canberra every day what you hear more than anything else is whippersnippers and ride-on lawnmowers doing the endless kilometres of road verges Mm. this is the kind of thing that could absorb people who need minimum wage, are not massively skilled, but are willing to learn to use that simple equipment well and safely, and it's a first
1: job we have at uh, TAFE down near UniSA uh, and also there are up in Salisbury, I think, uh, you, there's yeah. a lot of... Uh, we have a lot of uh, migrants and refugees, many of whom benefit and move on to greater things have to, after doing English language classes. But there are a lot of people who just cycle in and out of hours in these English classes at the moment. And when when they're in a period when they don't have funding to attend TAFE, they lose their English language skills. Yeah, it all goes backwards again. That's right. And in, in a previous generation then such migrants and refugees would have learned English in the workplace mm. because there were plenty of employment opportunities available for people to integrate in the community. Mm. There are not such opportunities anymore. And if you talk to these guys, many of them say, well, I just want a job. Yeah, any yeah.
0: job with some respect mm. and some some pride they can take in what they achieved.
1: And when people talk about, oh, it's a... Uh, shitty jobs or something you know i'm a middle-class middle-aged white man it's very often middle-class middle-aged white men that that make these kind of statements it's very easy to make that kind of statement if you're well off yourself and can't see why everyone wouldn't want to be uh, learning latin or or reading poetry or something Mm. at home not doing anything rather than doing some job that you regard as as in some way menial that's not in general, the attitude of people who face the reality of living on a poverty amount, how much is it, $40 a day, yeah. and having virtually no hope of secure employment. And for these people, the idea, for these people, for all of us actually, you know, I wouldn't mind, I was casual at the uni for a while and underemployed, and uh, I would have been quite happy to – well, I did do voluntary work, but i have been quite happy to go and plant some trees or mm. – Yeah, but if you could
0: have earned a minimum wage doing it, even better to have that little bit more financial security. And yeah. this is the point because you've got a system that has accepted the fundamentals of MMT. If 10 people turn up, their jobs can be created because it makes sense in this system. We're you know, going to create the money to pay them to do something meaningful that uses real resources. So there's no problems here, as I can see it.
1: I really don't like it when people say things like, oh, these people are unproductive or... What do you mean by productive? Uh, Employers in our community, quite Mm. quite fairly, I mean, it's not their job to employ everybody, but they'll hire someone to do a job if they're more or less forced into it, if we Mm. absolutely need another employee to meet the demand to make more profit. Mm. The fact that it may not be profitable to hire an extra worker... Well, you know, I work in a university... I'm not hired by a profit-making, uh, well, not conventionally profit-maximizing <laughs> business. Does that mean what I'm doing is not is not productive? Society has decided that what I'm doing is productive, and mm. that it should be heavily subsidized by the government. We have a wide variety of things that it would be nice to do, mm. but are in some respect or other public goods, and not there isn't the funding for them to be profitable, for them to be done. Uh, at the moment in the private sector or the conventional public sector. And it would be nice for these activities to take place. Bill Mitchell from Newcastle University did a survey of, well, he tried to survey half the local authorities in Australia about 10 years ago and got a 50% response rate. So that's still 25%. percent would still be. Yeah. And basically asked the question, you know, if we, if we had a job guarantee... Like this, and if it was down to the local authorities to come up with useful tasks locally, and if there was funding available to cover the administra- administrative and capital costs involved in doing these activities, could you come up with a, a list of things that it'd be worthwhile doing? And uh, it, it turns out there's no problem no. finding enough useful tasks for people to do. The idea that it makes sense in the future to separate our population out into two. But when people talk about t- technological change and the robots are coming and everything, they, they talk about a future where there'll be some haves who are in very, really well-paid jobs because there'll always be some people working. Mm. Uh, even in a Star Trek future, there are some people mm. yeah. uh, in jobs. that's it. Uh, uh, they're doing all right. And the idea that there'll be a, a whole other bunch of people, much bigger than the group of people who are, who are cursed with having to get by on start at the moment, who you'll maintain at some standard of living, presumably below that of the people who are in jobs um, by having a a universal basic income. It's not healthy. There are non-financial costs to not being in paid employment and there will always be as long as there are those two groups and as long as uh, if you're in the unemployed group It's not always a voluntary Mm. decision. Mm -hmm. So I'm not necessarily opposed to universal benefits Mm -hmm. being paid out. Mm -hmm. And I don't myself think that the way people talk about a UBI is feasible in the foreseeable future for a variety of reasons. Inflation, because it involves spending a a very large amount of money if it's adequate, Um, if it's a non-poverty payment. And if it's a poverty payment, I can't see the point in doing it. But... There is no contradiction between a federal job guarantee and a universal basic income. No, to an it, extent, they, they're, they're aimed at doing the same thing, which is eliminating involuntary poverty. But I think in
0: perception terms, there is going to be a big difference getting societies used to the difference in that I would have happily supported the idea of a you know, basic income guarantee before you, know, you came and talked about MMT simply because I couldn't see any other way to prop up the economic disaster that's coming. Well, I, come.
1: I'm in favour of a basic income guarantee, but it's not the same thing as a universal basic income. No. I'm not in favour of making a payment of, it would have to be above $20,000 yeah. a year to every adult in Australia. Just in terms of the gross cost of that, that yeah. the gross cost is not much less than the sum total of all federal government spending on everything. Yeah. Whereas,
0: the yeah, the whole thing here with the job guarantee is anyone who wants to have a go has a chance. And then the safety net for people who either can't or won't have a go is a much smaller group of people, and we can have specific policies. But yes. this is the other thing, too, with, you know, we use the word productivity. Now, I very much think of this in the terms of a societal security definition, mm. and this is a change in security theory over the last 20 years. From Historically, we secure the state. We secure physical boundaries and make sure that the institutions of the state can keep working. There's been more and more of a move towards societal security, which is to secure our sense of us and us functioning effectively as a group. Mm. So, to me, you know, the ultimate form of productivity for a government to achieve, for a society to achieve, is that society is healthy, relatively happy, and can get on with the things it values. Mm. So, you know, economics is a way to get to societal security. Societal security is not a way to get to a good economic outcome. The economic outcome has to, in the same way that national security does, ensure that we stay we and that we're a healthy, happy we who can get on with what we want to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The economy has to serve society. Yeah.
0: In and the same way national security yeah. has to serve society.
1: Yeah. The way people often talk about economics, and have been for the last 30 years really, is that the, the planet and the people are here to serve some great god, the economy, and if we don't do it correctly, the economy will become sick. And yeah, it's, it's, a bit like,
0: <laughs> it's a bit like praying to the volcano. It oh, is. volcano, please yeah. don't explode. Well, mm-hmm. the volcano doesn't listen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely,
2: yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. So it's interesting, though you identify as a progressive. So you, I'm not, I'm not questioning you on your policies. I'm just, I'm just trying to. No, well, get you to go ahead and question <laughs> whatever you like. Yeah. I'm just interested. So you don't see a point in effectively the dole for people who refuse to work? Yes, I do. Yes, do. I, 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 I'm, okay. I'm
1: in favour of a basic. the, the thing people forget. And it sounds so nice, that term, universal basic income. Mm. But the word I have a problem with is not basic and it's not income. It's, okay. the, it's the word universal. Oh, I see. With a universal basic income, it means you make an unconditional payment to every adult in the country. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, the unconditionality
0: that in a sense breaks the social
2: contract. Gina Reinhart. Yeah, okay.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. Gina Reinhart, but me too. I mean, that. In, in gross terms, is a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. Now, some of it you get back in tax, but particularly with the way they're talking about redesigning the tax system, <laughs> not very much. And they then talk about saving people that talk about UBI by getting rid of all the costs of Social Security in Australia at the moment, netting all that out as well. From a $440 billion gross figure, that nets out about $170 billion. Mm-hmm. It still leaves mm-hmm. quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to do that, that means you have to pack, pitch that UBI at at least the level of a single person's retirement pension. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're actually making a lot of people worse off mm-hmm. by introducing a UBI, which which means it has to be a high payment. It's a large amount. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the issue, well, as a modern monetary theory person like me would say, there's no problem in paying for it. Mm-hmm. You, there's nothing stopping the government mm-hmm. electronically creating a lot of money and paying it to someone. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, and sometimes people who are ecologists who are in favour of the UBI, I've said this to, you must be in favour of an enormous amount of economic growth then because people are going to spend that money, obviously, and uh, that means more goods and services have to be produced and maybe you need to reopen the Hazelwood power station to generate all the (laughs) power. Or or more realistically, it would be inflationary and then the, the value of the payment would be inflated away. So the way to pay for it without it being inflationary is to increase taxes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though we don't need the taxes to raise the money to pay mm-hmm. for it, we need the taxes to create space within the productive capacity to allow for the increased spending which recipients of those payments are going to make. Mm-hmm. And that means just for this one policy, mm-hmm. without going into the details, you basically have to take Australia's tax system and turn it into Norway's or or Finland, and I don't think people will vote for that. it's it's, it's it's too far. See, the
0: other side of this, and I don't know whether this ever comes up in economic theory, but with the job guarantee, people spend a fair chunk of their day doing something organised with another group of people, Mm. being socially connected, Mm. having social value, Mm. and at the end of the day, then they have some time to spend money. People who get handed a bag of money, and it's there when they wake up in the morning, have a lot of time and a lot of freedom and no clear direction to be socially connected, purposeful, meaningful, and in all likelihood, more people need direction than don't need direction to feel connected and engaged. UBI is just a path to mental health issues on a mass scale for what should I do with my life?
1: Yeah, I've, I've said that in presentations before now and... I've said uh, there are dozens of uh, papers by psychologists and sociologists yeah. and economists using different methods that have all said basically the same, same thing. Yeah. And had someone in the audience who was a psychologist criticise me and say, no, there have been hundreds, yeah. not dozens. Yeah. It's, it's just something that we... You know, humans know. need meaning.
0: So, you know, listeners, we've talked about it before. Go away and read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. There's meaning in love, meaning in work, and meaning in how you confront suffering. And if you don't have all three you're likely to have problems it's as simple as that
1: but i'm not necessary i'm not a virulent opponent of ubi if somebody wants to go away and compa- campaign for it and think about how to fund it in a way which is non-inflationary and you can get elected then you could have a job guarantee as well. Yeah, there's no
0: reason you can't have both things concurrently.
1: This seems attractive,
2: though, to a, a neoliberal in the sense that it would boost the pissing contest of GDP, wouldn't it? Would it no, not?
0: The neoliberals are going to get upset because the state is managing employment.
1: Okay. Well, first thing. <laughs> for, <But> I just, <laughs> sorry,
2: not for the job guarantee, but for the basic income. Oh, okay.
1: oh well, yeah, well, mate, well, one of the first people to propose a, a UBI was Milton Friedman. Yes. So, yes. Uh, yeah, it isn't. Uh, but I'm not, not saying it's necessarily left or right wing. You no, could say no, the same thing about a job guarantee, really. Yeah. A, a well, job essentially,
0: guarantee. Hitler and Roosevelt did it at the same time.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, But but the other thing about a job guarantee is it's uh, most of the estimates of the, in a sense, it doesn't cost anything. Mm. But if you want to talk about the financial cost, the impact on the on the budget balance, m- most of the co- most of the estimates are it would be in net terms somewhere between one and three percent mm-hmm. of GDP, which means in terms of spending, it's a tiny fraction yeah. mm. of what a UBI would be. And uh, when libertarians are going to talk about uh, about communism or something, you say, well, there's not that many people that are going to be working. and People are not going to quit their well-paid jobs on a no. whole to take a minimum wage <laughs> job. But if you don't want the job guarantee to be big and you're in the private sector, well, hire these people then. Yeah,
0: like <laughs> it's <easy>. if people <laughs> get off work and go to the pub and have three beers with their friends from their crew on whatever they're doing, and then go home and jump on and shop online. This is all beneficial. This is the foundation for combining a good social policy, a functioning economic policy, and underpinning all of society and the economy with people who can confidently spend a little bit of money because they know next week they've still got this job. And hopefully they've got the motivation to want to find the next job that pays a bit more, freeing a spot for the next person who needs that basic job.
1: It also, it, it is a move away from concentrating on G, on gross domestic product. Which right? is
0: healthy. Yeah. And as you were saying last time we were on with us, you know, you suggested that we talk to your friend who's working on a different way to measure economic activity.
1: Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, uh, Kate Roweth, who wrote the book Donut Economics, Ecological yes, Economics. Yes, that's really interesting. Yeah, she talks about being agnostic about GDP. Okay. And I kind of like that idea. In the conference in January, what I, I'm, well I'm, one of the things I'm trying to do is bring together modern monetary theory economists and ecological economists, mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of other people too, engineers and hopefully climate scientists and Uh, Hopefully there'll be one or two prominent politicians there as well. Awesome. And and others. I'm trying to bring them together because modern monetary theory is already moving in a a green direction, but it Mm. definitely needs an ecological perspective, and I don't like it when people talk about lost GDP as though in itself it is a cost of unemployment. It's not to me. Gross domestic product is a very imperfect indicator of the state of the economy. GDP is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Um, But on the other side, I want the ecological economists to take seriously to address, which some of them do already, how our monetary system works and how you're going to manage. Um, Some people don't like the term Green New Deal Mm -hmm. because it's an Americanism, harks back to the US in the 1930s. I kind of like the term because we need a green deal. Yes, we have to deal with climate change and we have to, we have to defend our natural capital. But we have to do that in a way which uh, guarantees people an opportunity to have a decent standard of living and creates a, an equitable society which guarantees, provides a social minimum in terms of the quality of life which is available to people and doesn't leave people on the... On the scrap sheet. So, what I'm going to ask these people to do, because the MMT people have in the past talked about GDP growth as though it's good, and the ecological economists talk a lot about degrowth, is say, let's just take gross domestic product off the table. Yeah, you think still about going it in to, a different way. Yeah, you're not going to. You're still going to measure it. Yeah. But we're not targeting it because it wasn't the purpose in the first place. And we want to degrow some things, carbon dioxide emissions. We mm. want to degrow, mm-hmm. for example. But there are other things the income of people and the life opportunities of people are at the bottom at the moment, we want to grow. So let's grow the things we want to grow and degrow the things mm. we want to de-grow. And actually, early on, we're measuring GDP. If we're making investments in wind turbines and things, actually GDP will go up mm. yeah. initially, yeah. inevitably. But that's not the point. The mm. point is that we're we're using up some of our carbon budget today in order to allow us to live within our carbon budget in a... In the, in the long term. So mm-hmm. I want to concentrate on the things that matter. And that's where if you're going to have one indicator, the genuine progress indicator makes sense because it, it builds in mm-hmm. all these other things. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a politician who wants to focus on one He wants a simple metric to
0: use in every interview. At least yeah. have a reasonable simple metric.
1: That's right so that's that's one of the things that we'll be discussing at the at the conference and as far as GDP growth is concerned uh, it's gross domestic product is not a simple measure of the quantity of economic activity taking place anyway there's all sorts of arbitrary assumptions made mm-hmm. in the accounting for GDP so if GDP happens to grow in the future while we're living within our ecological limits in a socially sustainable society fine mm-hmm. I don't care mm-hmm. if it shrinks, while people are uh, maintaining a a secure quality of life Mm -hmm. and gross domestic product happens to fall but nobody's ending up on the unemployment. Scrap heap then, I I don't Once again, no biggie. Yeah, that's that's my vision Mm -hmm. of the future in in the sense that I have a vision (laughs) of the future at all. There are lots of things about it I don't understand, which is another reason for uh, inviting lots of these people to Adelaide because... Of course we have Stephanie Kelton coming and she is for progressive economists of all sorts of types and other people too, politicians too. She's a bit of a movie star. Mm. So I'm afraid I'm shamelessly taking advantage of the fact she's coming to Adelaide by inviting lots of other people to come. I have no budget, so I'm not paying for them to fly or the yep. hotel bills. I'm just saying, you want to come and meet Stephanie? You can meet Stephanie. But at the same time, would you mind talking about nice. X, Y or Z? Nice, nice, That's nice. what we do? Yep.
0: Stephen, next thing that I thought would be interesting to talk about is it's clear from when I did the MMT reading and then started going, okay, how do I try and make sense of where we are now? That The big thing that I was aware of but became more aware of as I was reading is the extent to which, okay, if government debt isn't a problem for sovereign currency issuers, yeah, they've got the ability to manage this and it, it isn't the problem the neoliberals would make us believe it is, that then private debt is huge you know, australia and switzerland have this horrific level of personal debt
1: that's right yeah it's uh, it's our national private debt is not off the scale but in australia there isn't very much business debt yeah so other countries have as much private sector debt as us but it's more in the business sector and less in the household sector and of course ours is tied up with our property market And this uh, vision that we have in Australia that absolutely everybody, although if you're a younger person now this probably doesn't apply to you, but absolutely everybody regardless of how much you have to borrow to do so should own their own enormous house even when they're really young and at the beginning of life. So people have been buying into that for 30 years at least.
0: Well Menzies basically stayed in power for as long as he did by making it happen.
1: I suppose, uh, although in those days, yeah, property prices weren't so high. No, uh, but again, it's yeah.
0: Menzies who said, "Okay, let's make sure people can do this because mm. it's the Australian dream." Yeah. So even though it didn't get in under, con- it didn't get out of control under Menzies. The foundations for this being the Australian way were certainly built under Menzies. So it? almost Absolutely. seventy
2: years
1: old, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, but mm. it, it, if, if you go back thirty years, there mm. was quite a lot of public housing. Ah, mm-hmm. mm-hmm oh, so there's the, there's the
0: key difference: is yeah. that public housing meant that people had affordable housing until and if they were ready to jump into the
1: market? Uh, absolutely, and it's of course been sold off and uh, not replaced. As far as private debt is concerned, and if people have job security mm-hmm. and a secure and adequate income, then they can service that private debt and it's not going to lead to a financial downturn. But the bubble that we've had in the property market and the fact that, of course, at the moment we don't, a lot of people don't have secure permanent employment, and some of the people that think they do will find out if we have a downturn that actually they, they don't. It, it could easily trigger the one-third of people that are said to be in mortgage stress at the moment, and even people beyond that, to be forced into default.
0: Well, I saw a survey the other day that said over two-thirds of American households don't have two thousand dollars available mm.
1: yeah well absolutely wow. I, I I'm quite sure that's that's right and uh, in the u.s uh, the distribution of income is far more uneven than it e- it is even is here it has become more even here than it, than it was in the past oh, really uh, income distribution in australia not in the last 10 years it ha- all happened before then mm. really between the 1970s and the and the early two thousands, Australia went from a relatively equal society to really rather unequal one. We are uh, OECD countries in general have become more unequal down the years, but Australia was more equal than the average. So we suffered the 70s, more obviously, and we're now less equal than the average, albeit only marginally. The US is is far more unequal than us for a variety of reasons. One of which is that they have a virtually non-existent federal minimum wage. Mm. Yes, as long as people have a decent income and they don't become unemployed and interest rates stay low, which they are going to, then you can service these debts and it's unlikely to cause a crisis. And so maintaining full employment is important. There are some people who argue for a debt jubilee, partially or wholly, where basically the government takes on board some of this debt and wipes it out. Now, I'm in favour of that where student debt is concerned, which is a much smaller thing in terms of scale anyway. And
0: also empowers people and society as a whole yeah. by taking that debt off early in people's adult lives.
1: Yeah, I'm not personally in favour of that as far as, as uh, as far as for political reasons in part, uh, as far as uh, mortgage debt is concerned. I think there would be major political problems in, in doing yeah. that, particularly from people who are not on the property market Education is
0: a social good, but property isn't. Not, yeah. not in the way we have it here anyway. Yeah, yeah,
1: but we yeah. do have the responsibility, uh, given that we have accumulated this level of, of household debt, uh, we have the responsibility to maintain the economy at, at full employment to allow people to service this debt. And we also, and virtually everybody in modern monetary theory agrees with this, uh, we never thought uh, the use of interest rates to manage demand worked in the first place. And so we are all in favour of interest rates, as was the case, actually, immediately after the Second World War, being basically low or virtually zero indefinitely and limiting lending by having very tight financial regulation, which is how it used to be done. And there was no particularly good reason, apart from an addiction to the use of the market to price everything always, for getting rid of the tight financial regulation which we had years ago. Neoclassical stroke neoliberal economists talk about financial repression when you do that. <laughs> when you, but actually um, that's what we would like to do. Yeah, but if it was
0: the boom period of the 50s and 60s, was that low interest rate, um, you know, careful lending criteria period, and things were going gangbusters, how can that be a repression?
1: Well, exactly. Well, it, 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 like, repression, am I missing something? So just
0: freedom of choice is repression. Taking away some freedom of choice.
1: Uh, that's that's right. Yeah, of course, there's other freedoms of choice for uh, uh, knocking off other people's products. Yeah. So they don't like you doing that. Okay. <laughs> I
0: got asked something about this low interest rates because it seems to me that the Australian population have become so addicted to property as the nest egg building, wealth building strategy of choice. It's almost like as a country enough people don't do small business or don't do other kinds of investment. They just get that next property to lock something in for their future. And under these terms, if interest rates were so low, would we get an even worse property bubble Mm. is my No, because
1: we would make it very difficult to borrow money for investment.
0: So lending for that second property would be, okay, show cause, why you should get this money when a first apartment home buyer should get the money. It would well, be much harder to...
1: Well, for a couple of years, they, they've loosened the rules again now because they're worried about the property market turning down. But for a couple of years, they basically told the banks, this is the amount of lending that you are allowed to do for investment mortgage purposes. You can't mm. do more than this. So, once so there's again, no reason you can't do yeah, that. So in
0: the same way with MMT, you you be careful about how much new money is created to not cause inflation. You could have policy settings on lending for housing to go, look, a healthy market, fine, but don't let the market overheat. So you could be controlling money going into the housing market mm. like you're controlling money going to the economy. We Am I getting it right?
1: already do that, um, which is why APRA has loosened up this year on the choir, even despite the fact that we've just had the Banking Royal Commission. They've loosened... Rules as far as mortgage lending is yeah. concerned in the last year. Which will it mean our bubble
0: will be, be worse.
1: Yeah, well, there of course, the government is betting on the bubble getting worse because if you're trying to run a budget surplus and there's no business investment boom, uh, then oh, some of it's come from so exporting minerals, but the rest you're relying on households to Jesus. borrow into
0: existence. That's what they're doing. So right. in order to keep the neoliberal economy upright... We are deliberately destabilising the property bubble further,
2: and it's uh, the, this is the government doing they, this.
1: They don't realise they're doing it, and it's oh, not going to work <laughs> anyway, or at least not for very long. But, but basically, that's what's happened. Yes, we've had, of course, we've got very low interest rates already. We've had uh, APRA having tightened up because they were worried about the state of the property market a couple of years ago. They've loosened up. That's one of the things, along with lower interest rates, that's helped to temporarily boy up the Sydney and Melbourne property market in the last couple of couple of months. No, um, Mark, but as far as we're concerned, that's that's where we we want to limit. Bearing in mind, without implicitly, this is already done to an extent. But we want to limit the scale and the di- and influence the direction of credit creation through regulation. So, not, what does MMT
0: say about credit creation? Is there some rules that? have come out or are there guidelines or how do we make sense of how MMT sees credit creation? Because that's different to money creation, isn't it? Or is uh, it?
1: It's a form of money creation. It's This is going to be... If we end up talking about different forms of money, This this might, I might miss my lecture this afternoon because it's quite okay. a long story. <laughs> so, but, but, but yeah, banks create money when they lend, absolutely.
0: But it's different to being a sovereign currency issue, isn't it? In that you're under the guidelines of the government saying you guys can create so much, lend so much?
1: It's different in a number of ways. One of the ways in which it's different is it doesn't create net financial assets for the private sector because when people borrow money, they have to repay it later. Right, Where, that makes and sense. And yep. when the government spends money into existence, it can just stay. It that. just
0: goes to da it's like a mushroom oh, yeah. popping up.
1: So uh, government created money, uh, increases the supply of what we call net financial assets for the private sector, adds to private sector financial wealth. Bank-created money, private bank-created money by lending to their customers, uh, and this doesn't—they can't. It's not that there aren't limits on their ability to do this, but they literally do create money for their customers out of thin air mm. by typing on a computer keyboard, like the one that's just across the across this table from me at the moment. But then, of course, as I was saying, those those debts and interest on those debts have to be repaid by mm-hmm. the people that borrow them, which makes, of course, that approach to trying to push your economy forward, which has been the basis well, of economics. For the economic, 30 years. That's right. It, it means eventually you reach a point when it breaks down. Because and you that's to, where we are now.
0: Because you have to keep saying to the banks, we're going to keep tweaking you and tweaking you, but at the end of the day they can't do what a government can do so it just destabilizes other things well, like you, the property you, market
1: yeah absolutely and, and you can you can cut interest rates eventually all the way to zero which is virtually where we are where now where we are now and you can get rid of all the rules on lending which we haven't done but you can do you could, you, if you you could want. do that if you wanted to but you will still reach a point eventually where the burden of making the repayments on that debt mean that that strategy will not work anymore and meanwhile it's created a very fragile financial system with the potential for a crash.
0: And if you do this, you're essentially making private debt worse because you're letting citizens borrow more money on things that are just going to become less and less stable and where the value will be undermined by the instability in the system. So private debt gets even more and more unsustainable, which will eventually be the thing that undermines security of employment.
1: And we've had mathematical models. They're not that complicated that have uh, explained this for years. They're called stock flow consistent models because uh, when people borrow, that's a flow of lending, but you end up with more debt. That's a stock. And you can look to see what the implications of current policies are for how the stocks of things like household debt will evolve in the future and see whether they appear to be plausible. Now, uh, uh, the main economist behind the development of these was someone who was a a head of department at Cambridge in the 1970s. His name was Wynne Godley, and he was, amongst other things, Wynne explained in 1992 why the institutions of the Eurozone wouldn't work and how the Eurozone would crash. And he said basically when this happens, weaker economies will either have to be bailed out by the European Central Bank. Which we've already seen. Yeah, or they'll see skyrocketing interest rates on government debt, or they'll have to have uh, terrible fiscal austerity and a prolonged depression. Which we've depression. already seen. Now, he wrote that down in 1992. There was no euro until 1999, yeah. and these problems arose in 2010, <laughs> basically using his his model. And he, and a similar sort of model, an Australian economist called Steve Keane. He's in it, Sydney, isn't he? He was in Sydney. He since after that he went to be a head of department at Kingston University in London. Okay. He's now the world's only crowd funded academic economist in that he <laughs> doesn't rely on a university for income anymore. He relies on people That's amazing. making subscriptions and pay uh, he developed a, He's developed some software to run his model on, which is it's called the Minsky model. Everybody can download it if they're... Okay, so this is
0: going back to Minsky from the 60s that you were talking about at That's the beginning. That's right, yeah.
1: Okay. Steve is not a modern monetary theorist, or he doesn't call himself... He calls himself a Minskyan economist, but he's sort of on the fringes. But the
0: Minskians could come and hang out, and it would help the discussion. That's the sense I get from we what, what you're saying see Minsky
1: today. as one of the founders of MMT. So he's sort, he sort of granddad. Died. That's he, right. He, he, he I've, gets got, I've just mentioned Wynne Godley. Yeah. He was yeah. one of the granddads. Died okay. in 2010. Minsky died in 1996. He was another granddad. Okay. And even a little bit before that, somebody called Abba Lerner, uh, who used to talk about functional finance and running the government budget deficit wherever it Ah, uh, you talked to be about functional finance
0: for a minute last time. That's I remember right. the phrase, but not they in the They are the detail. three. Okay.
1: We've got sort of three grandparents as far as modern monetary theory is well, concerned. that's good. More
0: those. genetic mix.
1: Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the point is that these people have had the models for years that have explained yeah. what would happen. But. Neoclassical economists don't read the journals that these models are published in and don't read the models or no, if they, they do they say they're not important or well, they read
0: what they believe in and they believe what they read so they just keep the cycle that's going That's right
1: and their model is essentially a barter model Yeah So it has it originally had no money and banks we're in
0: back it. to our original concept where yeah. you asked us why does money exist and we both got it wrong and everyone I've asked has basically got it wrong as well but when you explain, no, 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 tax, everyone has the same light bulb moment.
1: Everybody, even Aristotle, got it wrong. Yeah, because money is so old that even when he was a- around, it, it was already ancient. it was already normal. Yeah, yeah. That, that's God. right. Now, now, now that we've totally
0: depressed ourselves, don't well, you? no reason to be depressed we because depressed we've
1: got min- we've got Mosler's law, and Mosler's law is that there is no financial crisis big enough fix. so that a monetary sovereign government can't fix it with the right fiscal policy. Ah.
0: So you have just come back from Stony Brook. That's right. What was the fun that's stuff you would like to tell us about your adventures in the world?
1: Well, this was the third International Modern Monetary Theory Conference. The first one, a couple of years ago, was uh, in Kansas City, which you were talking to me uh, yeah, about Yeah, I did some before. reading about the yeah, Kansas uh, you, school people. Uh, that's right. Uh, the second one was at the New School in New York last year, and the third one was at Stephanie's University, which is on Long Island um Stony Brook University, which I was that, I don't know, about a month ago or something. It's a been a blur. Yeah. Well you know what it's like. Yeah. I was away from the university for about a week and that involved flying to flying all the way around the world and back, greatly adding to carbon emissions, but never mind, let's not worry about that for the moment. So it yeah, it was it's marvelous. I have on the previous two occasions given a few talks, but I didn't this time. I went just to listen and to talk to people behind the Scenes, but it's great to hear from people like Stephanie Kelton and the leading Australian modern monetary theorist who's also coming in January, Bill Mitchell, and a variety of other people and uh, activists about uh, modern monetary theory and the progress that it's making. We had the uh, economic advisor for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez there talking about their Green New Deal proposals and uh, to the extent I, 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 I... I uh, got involved a little bit in a discussion group we had on a job guarantee. I was partly there, actually, to ask for a bit of help over here because um, modern monetary theory is going global at the moment, but it's doing that primarily because it's making such big inroads in the US.
0: Yeah, that's obvious in sort of the US press where newspapers are now talking about the impact kind of in you know, public service buildings in Washington, in sort of backbench of both political parties, that too many people are asking too many questions and the neoliberals are for once at least looking slightly nervous.
1: And and we had an amazing thing happen earlier this year that uh, there was a, a motion put down in the Senate to condemn modern monetary theory. I don't think any sort of – I don't like to use the word scientific, but I don't think any – uh, social science theory has ever been the subject of a motion in the US Senate to, sounds, to condemn. It almost
0: sounds back to McCarthyism, doesn't it? Let's yeah, kill no an kidding. idea no that no could kidding. be dangerous. Well,
1: and of course it has completely opposite effect because yeah. it just puts it in One the newspapers. One's ever run up, which is fantastic. Okay. And Stephanie has become the global face of modern monetary theory, Stephanie Kelton, which is why it's great that she's coming to Adelaide for a couple of weeks in January and She'll be seeing lots of people that I can't mention in various political parties and uh, we'll have a lot of events while she's here, including the conference between the 10th and 12th of January and she'll be doing a, an official university lecture, the Harcourt lecture on the, on the 14th of, of January. I can't wait to, to have her uh, over here. She's a great ambassador for modern monetary theory mm-hmm. and a, a superb communicator. Mm. It'll be marvellous to have Bill Mitchell here too. Um, who along with Warren Mosler they are the two people who uh, really developed most of modern monetary theory as we use it now 25 years ago so Bill will be here in person Warren will be interviewing online he won't he's not going to come over in 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 person but he'll have uh, some part to play in the conference and uh, I hope that by bringing a lot of very interesting people together and encouraging them to talk to each other um, outside the conference room, that some interesting things are going to happen. Wow.
0: Fingers crossed. And listeners, you know, MMT, Adelaide 2020, be there or be square. Yeah.
1: it's definitely, Things are definitely moving very rapidly in our direction for reasons which are, are, are not all positive which is, as we were saying before, the old strategy of trying to balance the budget. And you can see the government, everybody's telling the government, no, give up on budget surpluses.
0: Yeah, and they're not listening because they drank the Kool-Aid.
1: Yeah, the idea of trying to balance the budget and then trying to use interest rates to keep inflation in the Reserve Bank's target range, which has been the consensus since 1993 in Australia, is broken.
0: Well, that same comment that you made, and I think Warren wrote about it, the American economy didn't have problem until Clinton balanced the budget.
1: Well, that's yeah. right. Yeah. In, that's the point of the
0: beginning of the disaster.
1: In modern times, yeah. that's the only significant surplus that there's ever been in And the you US. just
0: watch the beginning of the problems because by that Gee. point, the mindset has locked in.
1: Yeah the only time J- the japanese government ran a fiscal surplus was the end of the 1980s which yeah, was the which beginning was the early of the end. decline yeah. that's right yeah and, yeah. and uh, you often find this of course because what allows you to run that fiscal surplus is lots and lots and lots of private sector borrowing yeah, yeah.
2: Yep, yep, yeah yep. yep. and and not very much public investment
1: well, that's why you have a fiscal yeah. surplus. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So,
2: look, having watched one of your talks on YouTube, you started off with a really awesome uh, Keynesian quote. I'm hoping that you can remember that was something about. Yeah,
1: that, that's a talk from five and a half years ago. yes uh, Keynes said something along the lines. I won't get the words right, you okay. know, but it's in one of the prefaces to the General Theory that the problem is not with the new ideas; it's escaping from the old ones. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah.
2: Awesome. And I'm wondering whether you have some estimations about when this may become mainstream this is a bit future
1: well um, i can tell you that in 2013 i remember sitting at a conference listening to bill mitchell mm-hmm. saying something brilliant because uh, bill like uh, david here and like uh, a mutual friend of ours called alex the three geniuses as far as i'm concerned and uh, 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 and i sat there thinking wow this is impressive but i was also thinking at the same time nobody's listening What's Mm. the point? What is the point of coming to conferences like this? Nothing is ever going to happen. So, in 2013, how many modern monetary theory, uh, uh, how many people in Australia knew about modern monetary theory? I probably knew all of them. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you could all sit around one table and share one cake. That's Mm. right. There
1: are now thousands, and not not just thousands of people who've heard of it. There are thousands of people that could do the talk I did in 2014 pretty well.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean that that's an impressive thing to say. I'm just, I don't know. I'm we're just waiting for the people who think of the old system to die, is what I'm
1: questioning. Well, we don't need everybody to vote. Uh, <laughs> we do need a political figure to come to step to, up uh, mm-hmm. and be um, the
0: leading political person on this. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: I think in America, if Bernie Sanders was ten years younger, it would be a one-horse race. Yeah, in mm. presidential. Election. But the
0: problem is, after the heart was a heart attack.
1: Well, I think, yeah, yeah, but it was a minor one and he's fine now. Yeah, but, but
0: if he picks the right person to be VP, uh, this can all be worked with, can't it? That's, that's the, the point that sense.
1: everybody is making and yeah. some people are buying into in the US, which is actually if you're president, you get to appoint a lot of people. Yeah, and there's the always a the risk of the president. <laughs> Something's going to happen to the president. Yeah,
0: but um, the team is what matters in the long right. run because the ideas here, again, Bernie Sanders, I never really paid any attention because being a security guy. The way he speaks, the way he presents, has no positive impact on me, none. Mm. But the ideas of MMT that I can run with, and if he's a guy that's pushing MMT, I can make sense of the fact my security brain goes, meh. But, uh, well, so. he,
1: he, he's not. We're not. A, he's sort of not pushing MMT, and we don't. We don't really need politicians. No. Well, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, maybe because she's a younger generation, she does stand up with the MMT textbook and yeah. have a photo taken, but. Um, we just need them to talk about the things that matter. Well, we need mm. them to
0: appoint good people when yeah. they have the power to. Mm.
1: Well, if he was to become the president, I'd certainly be in Washington watching Stephanie as she was appointed Treasury Secretary, and then uh, I see it. I might have said this last time I was here, but I, I see an event like that as being like the coup in Chile in 1973. Yeah. It's World the order. first domino yeah. to fall. Thing, it, it, and things will start going the other way. Eventually that, it will happen.
0: That's the sense I got from sort of my reading in the few days after you were on last time, mm. that we can either get here the nice way, mm. which is a presidential win in America by the right people, or we can get here after the bus hits the wall.
2: Or the crashes. <laughs> um, well, you say that, but the GFC, which...
0: Yeah, but the bus didn't hit the wall because we used all the money to maintain the system on yeah. life support. We'd learnt
1: just enough. We hit the
0: wall and we clicked
2: rewind, I yeah. think, yeah.
1: We'd learnt just enough from 1929, or the people in charge had, Mm. uh, and in some economies like Australia, there were just enough sensible things done Mm -hmm. for long enough Mm -hmm. so that we didn't really learn all the big lessons that Mm. uh, uh, an absolute catastrophic breakdown might have have, It it just
2: seems to me that some of the instruments have changed, who's responsible has changed, but uh, largely... What is coming is a very similar kind of crash that's based on housing, kind of investment, and things like that.
1: I, so. I don't think it's a, a inevitable that's going to happen. Okay. And I think if we were to win a presidential election, and even even Elizabeth Warren, with a little, we have a little bit of influence there. I think. Um, I, I think we could avoid that. Okay, but yes, you're right. There's always the potential, yeah, for uh, something along those lines to to happen I don't think there's going to be a global financial downturn in the immediate future mm-hmm. to match 2009 uh, okay 9 oh, sorry uh, yeah t- well 2008 yeah. is when it started Starting yeah in
0: 9 yeah. is when things really really broke yeah. 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 yeah
2: and and listeners um if you're a little bit Blurry, maybe about some of the things we talked about when uh, we started talking about the depress- the depressing situation of a potential collapse. Uh, Go I back would and
0: listen to Richard Heinberg. Yeah, that. Yeah,
2: And I would also recommend if you're really, really confused and you need someone to explain it to you at the most basic level, the big, that, the, uh, the big Short. Listen to That's a good short. movie. It's mm. very
1: educational yeah. as well. It mm. actually teaches you one or two things about uh, how s- different derivatives work and uh, yes. yeah, all the rest yeah. of it. Yeah. And Um, and it more or less is factual, more or less. Yeah, Yeah. well, it's dramatized. It's dramatized. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah.
2: Well, I haven't consumed as much MMT media, but I've actually been following some other podcasts uh, that you've done, a few of your videos and things as well, Stephen. So I'm going to recommend them now. The MMT podcast uh, I found incredibly useful, and they talk to uh, Warren Mosler and and yourself, and so there's quite a few important people on that podcast, and that is really delving into some of the nuts and bolts of, you know, how bonds work and things like that. So,
1: okay, that's the one with Christian Riley. That's the one. Christian Riley is a a very talented and, and famous comedian. Oh, okay. A musical comedian. He's a musician, and mm-hmm. he's been here in the Fringe. I, I don't think he's coming next year, but he he does a podcast in the UK with an engineer called Patricia Pino. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yes, they've interviewed everybody at one time, yeah, or another. Yes, the other set of podcasts I recommend, and actually, of course, uh, nobody can see this, but I've got a t-shirt on today. It's the real progressives ones from the US, okay, which mm-hmm. are mainly done by somebody called Steve Grumbing. Mm. It was also a very good and uh, very passionate interviewer. Oh, awesome. Well, uh, you
2: certainly don't have to listen to those to understand today's episode. However, if you like today's episode, that's where to go.
0: And particularly if you're thinking of going to the MMT conference here in Adelaide in January, Mm. where you potentially may be able to rub shoulders with us while we run around with microphones, going, please, people, tell us what you're thinking. Listen to more stuff. Be ready.
2: That's it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Stephen, uh, for joining us again. Yeah, it's... It's awesome. Every time you come in, we kind of...
1: Well, thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to David doing some interviews in January. And uh, if I could do a a plug, if anybody is interested, they Mm. can... I think it's mm mm adelaide-mmt-2020.com. I
0: thought it was mm mmt adelaide twenty It'll be in the show
1: description. (laughs) (laughs) I might have got it wrong. (laughs) In fact, I I probably have got it wrong. It should be really interesting. The idea is it's supposed to be educational, so it's not a traditional economics conference. Most of the people there won't be economists, uh, and we want to take people on a journey. Mm -hmm. Um, So hopefully the sequence in which we discuss everything Uh, should make some kind of sense. We'll start off introducing... Modern monetary theory and ecological economics,
0: and then move in as we go,
1: and then move into the kind of society that people might like to create in the future, mm-hmm. and then we'll be talking towards the end about uh, whether it's even feasible to do. Cool. To how we could measure progress towards yeah. achieving.
2: Yeah, that's the idea. A big narrative, and everyone loves a story. That's how they yeah. like. Well, I hope so. We'll mm-hmm. see yeah. whether it works yeah. out. But that's the idea. Yeah. All right. Well. Uh, yeah. Again, thank you. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you, David. Thank you, gentlemen.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace
1: out.